Save the Stub. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Save the Stub podcast. Um, I am joined, as I always am, by Will Foster and Harry Osborne. How are you guys doing? Hello. <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. What was that, Harry? I'm trying to see what would happen. <laughs> A great introduction for you guys. Um, well, on today's episode... We are looking at, we look at the news and we look at the news of a Game of Thrones spin-off um, announced by HBO uh, to be written by the man himself, George R. R. Martin. We also look at the possibility of some Knives Out sequels on Netflix. We discuss from the mailbag what it would take to give a film a 0 out of 10. And then our film of the week is Denzel Washington in Man on Fire from Tony Scott. Look forward to all of that and let's get into it. So it's been a pretty slow week for news, but we've got a few things that we want to talk about. The first one was George R. R. Martin signing another deal with HBO, um, which is a five-year commitment for some presumably new shows and new projects. Um, I've not seen Game of Thrones, guys, but what what might this mean? Does it mean we're going to get some more stuff that's come off the back of Game of Thrones? I know that there's obviously a series of books, isn't there? And there's lots of material that I think could probably go into I think... HBO have realised that letting people not literally living for the Game of Thrones franchise write for it doesn't work. You know, Benioff and Weiss are like the two most hated men in America <laughs> for what they did to that final season of Game of Thrones. And I think HBO have recognised they need to sort of just com- combat that by having someone who lives and breathes it. But if I was someone who liked the books, which I know a lot of people do, especially since that that you know that is the stuff that made Game of Thrones what it is. I would be fuming because the bloke writes slowly anyway. How long has it been since he finished? He started this book ten years or something, and they still haven't managed to get a sequel. And it's now he thinks he's going to spend the next five years making TV shows again. Because I feel like there's been a weird lull between the end of Game of Thrones and like now, and they like they they knew it was successful way before the last season, and like. I would have thought they would have gotten on with making all this stuff at the same time as finishing off Game of Thrones. I swear it's been a few years where like nothing's come out. They've talked about stuff being produced. And I guess this is, again, news that stuff's being made, but it's not actually been made. I suppose we're also... We do have to accept that coronavirus probably has played a bigger part than we'd like to think. Because what is it? it? Ireland is the main filming location for most mm. of the original Game of Thrones. And then what they go to, like, Croatia... And then a couple of other strange spots for some of the other bits. Yeah. But I imagine being able to have that, especially with the number of people they must be bringing in to make this show, being able to fly them all over the place and produce during that pandemic, which realistically is probably, what, a year and a half now, are we talking? Yeah. Probably a bit of a an undertaking for Game of Thrones. But I do I do agree. I'm, I'm shocked they didn't start stuff back in season five and six. Do you feel like it will um, come off, though? Do you think there's, like, the amount of lore in the Game of Thrones, do you think there's, like, potential for more than one successful series of TV? I do, yeah. I think it's it's the same it's the same breed as, you know, Tolkien with Lord of the Rings. You know, yeah. the Hobbits weren't good. I thought they were awful, but I do like Lord of the Rings. But you'll always go and watch them. It's the same for the Avengers. These franchises know they've got a monopoly on their market, and they can just keep exploiting it. You know, you, get a, you even just get maybe one or two shows out of the however many they're making it must be like five or six now they've committed to that take off you can let the other few die because no one will ever think about them again in five years 
But if two of them do really well, you know, even rectify a little bit what Game of Thrones didn't quite get right, then HBO have made their money. You know, I think I think either way, to be fair, they're going to make their money. But then if they've also cemented themselves as a good franchise, it just it's that snowball effect, isn't it? It just keeps funding itself really from then on. So um, I mean, I understand why George R. R. Martin's done it, but isn't he like seventy or eighty? Yeah, he must and, be getting. getting and on. he doesn't strike me as the healthiest bloke. So I mean, <laughs> no, he doesn't look great. No, he looks like he should be mining gold. Like, doesn't he? He looks like a character in his own books, and yet yeah. the man still has to write two more, and he hasn't. He hasn't done it. He just seems to do it on his own schedule. Will so would his role? I was going to say, Sorry, as someone who it. hasn't seen Game of Thrones, would you feel a bit intimidated starting like a spin-off series if you haven't seen the original? Like, would you feel kind of obliged to have to go through all of those seasons to catch up? To be honest, no. I'd probably be, I'd probably be more likely to like watch something new than go back and try and watch all the Game of Thrones beforehand. Mm. Like, I did. I have watched a bit of Game of Thrones, but like. It just wasn't very accessible for me at the time. Is that a really elaborate way of saying that I was really dumb? On <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's but, uh, even harder to access now, given that you know the ending's disappointing. Like, why would you ever start a show where you know everyone was annoyed with how it ended? Oh, that's a, that. We should answer that question on an entire podcast because this, the first lockdown, I committed to watching Lost, and I'd been yeah, told yeah, by everyone that the ending was awful. Was but yeah. like, looking back at it now, those first two seasons, I think, were like quality TV, but it was like a challenge to kind of commit to watching the whole thing. Yeah, which is why when people come to recommending, had you asked me three years ago, I would have said 100% start Game of Thrones. Yeah. And yet now it has to be something where I've seen it, you know, Dark is my is my go-to of a show where they actually get the ending done in a way that's satisfying for everyone. Even if it's not the ending you want, it is an ending that is viable. It's really tough though, and I feel like we discussed it when that last season was coming out, was that it sucks that it kind of cancels out all this great tv when you look back at it and the bit you remember is that ending it's really yeah. hard to look back and think of the the best bits when you're like all of those best bits were just leading up and creating this final point that was so disappointing yeah i mean game of thrones had actually entered that sort of territory of what would you call it sort of untouchable you know it's one of those cult cult icons of not cult sorry just sort of mythical icons of the time you know you'd Fortnite, awful but like everyone knows what it means and Game of Thrones was synonymous with itself, wasn't it? You know, it was every week there's a Game of Thrones pun or a meme for every sports team that you follow or whatever, and and they just shot it so badly. <laughs> dear, dear. Yeah. So I mean, George R. R. Martin. So his role would be a writer, right? Mm, but didn't he write yeah. all of the original ones anyway, which it, ended up? Well, this is the thing. From about, I think it was earlier than we'd like to think. He, his sort of creative control diminish because obviously they've got to streamline the books and stuff apparently there's hundreds of characters in the books that don't make appearances in the show or characters that have to change the aspects and names of to make them a bit clearer on tv so i think he's almost there as sort of like an expert witness but i wonder if he'll actually have that much creative control i feel like not really you know same way that jk rowling was on harry potter they they said we're buying the rights from you but you can be there as a consultant but i don't think necessarily they have to listen to you yeah, he can be involved, but like mm. at the end of the day, that it doesn't really mean anything. They, they might even have done it and just thought it is the least amount of money we can get away with to make some fans feel happy that we've given responsibility to the guy who created it. Just literally, literally like a figurehead. He might not do anything, but I'll have his name on the tin. Interesting. Well, yeah, that was the first bit of news we had. Um, we had an exciting release, Ooh. I think. I think. I say it, I think. I'm I wouldn't sure. call it that. That's, What's it going to be? <laughs> 
Well, Space Jam is like quite an iconic film. I think it was a little bit before our time. I certainly haven't watched it because um, it had Michael Jordan in it and he's obviously one of the most famous basketball players of all time. Um, but they're releasing a second one and this has been like out for ages um, I think people have known about it but it's got LeBron James LeBron James he's kind of like this era's version of Michael Jordan and they released the trailer um, this week uh, Rory watched the film last night so Rory maybe why don't we talk about the original film first yeah I think it's one of those things it's difficult yeah continue it's difficult it's difficult <laughs> I just, it's difficult to understand like I know people that do love the film, but I haven't watched it, so I can't really, I can't really. Comment. I think its importance is very much kind of like in the culture, especially the culture at the time of when the film came out. Like accessing that everyone's love for basketball, love for Michael Jordan and his career, um, and then kind of mixing that with like what was on TV at the time, like cartoons, the Looney Tunes, all of that. Um, create, it's, it's a fun film. I imagine it was fun at the time when it doesn't look as kind of comically poor as it does now. Um, stuff like guest appearances from Bill Murray, uh, the guy that plays Stan, who's in Jurassic Park, I can't remember his name right now. It it adds up to be a funny film, but certainly you look back and it's probably one of those so bad it's good films. Um, okay. In terms of basketball, it's quite fun to see Michael Jordan attempt to act, uh, but yeah, he's, he's probably not built for the big screen. No, well, I can't imagine LeBron. LeBron James. I can't wait to just chuck in so many LeBron James into this, into this podcast. <laughs> yeah. but. LeBron's done acting before, though. He was in a film with, um, is it Bill Hader? He's a big American actor. He does a lot of comedy roles. I don't know what the film is, but it's him playing basketball against LeBron for like a scene. And he, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't awful. I'm not saying he was good, but he wasn't awful. I guess I mean, as what now they're all a lot kind of better tuned in to media. I think yeah. before it was kind of like your media was a one-on-one interview after a game whereas now it's like you've got this constant stream of a TV in your face Yeah, TV but even from that trailer uh, it didn't look good do you know what I mean it, it just looks crap and then Don Cheadle walking around as like the Matrix looks so cheap too do you know what I mean mm. well Rory said it but for anyone that doesn't know the film at all like the premise is it's a, like a crossover between Looney Tunes and kind of like real life mm. sports people in this case, basketball players. But it's kind of weird because is Looney Tunes even a big thing anymore? I feel like they don't... <laughs> what what have they done in the last, like, 20 years? Like, any new content yeah, at all? Yeah, not, not really. I think still Warner bang, Brothers though, kind of I have it think. as, like, something on the back burner, don't they? Like, they can always... It's like this pinnacle of TV at that time, but they can kind of lean on it in the sense that you've got these iconic characters who a lot of... Gen- like, quite a few generations now will associate with. It wasn't just Looney Tunes either. In the trailer, there was a lot of it, Warner Brothers are shoving all of their franchises. We're gonna get into like it. a Super Smash Bros. but with LeBron. Yeah, a little bit because you saw Iron Giant running about. There were some other ones that aren't coming to mind right now, but it, it looked more like they know Looney Tunes isn't really relevant anymore. Yeah, let's just Ready Player One this film and make it a mashup of everything we own. See if anyone, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if fucking. You know, DC turn up and Batman swings and some <laughs> shit like that. I, I honestly wouldn't be shocked, honestly. Well, it's a bit of fun. I'll probably still watch it to be honest. I'm interested. I probably need to watch the first one. I think like I'm going to watch it without. But... I don't want to spend time. That's the thing. I think you you watch it as like a bit of fun. No one's going into it expecting yeah. a cinematic masterpiece, and it should be a bit of fun by the end of the day. Yeah. 
All right. Well, final bit of news. Big money moves. Uh, maybe this should be a new section. But Netflix have closed a $450 million deal for a couple of sequels to Knives Out. Ah. Um, yeah. So what what do we think of that? I think that's a spunking waste of money. Did you guys both see Knives Out? I have seen it, yeah. I, I haven't seen it. it. It wasn't my cup of tea, but I can accept that it's a film that is like, I don't know, good at what it does. You know, it's a murder mystery at its heart. That's what it is. Mm. With a cool cast... And some nice art direction and stuff. However, it is nothing that needs a sequel. You know, it's a standalone film. I, I don't know. I, th- I think the, the idea of the sequels is that they won't have the same characters apart from Daniel Craig's. Daniel Daniel Craig and I think Anna de Armas is somehow in the next one as well. Sure, that that feels like that. But she was like a housekeeper, cheesy. so I'm a little like, how's that work? Also, she anyway, becomes like a. You know, uh, yeah, like his assistant or something. Uh, I don't fucking know. Yeah. Anyway. I just don't see the the need unless they've got some really good scripts down, which I kind of feel like Rian Johnson must have fleshed out for Netflix. Was it to from buy a, Was that. it from like? Is it adapted from a novel or something? Um, I don't know actually. It if could it be, was, yeah. I feel like that could make sense. But yeah, it, that would be because you know I'm thinking sort of Agatha Christie, yeah, yeah. Poirot sort of vibes. Which again, I don't care about because they're doing Poirot right now, aren't they? The the, one, the death on the River Nile and the Murder on the Orient Express. That River Nile one coming out next year, and Orient Express didn't do very well last year. So um, I think the problem with it just doesn't do anything. For is me. that Knives Out worked, and it was I, I actually really liked it. I think it was good, but I think when it comes to a sequel, especially with murder mysteries, you go into a murder mystery and you're like, murder mysteries have to fill these certain criteria, tick the boxes, maybe chuck in a few exciting characters, but you kind of know what you're getting at the end of the day. And Knives Out had a few twists and turns that made it really exciting. But now, I feel like each of those sequels is going to be the exact same format. Mm. Like, I don't see how, unless they keep mixing up somehow, it's going to get repetitive. And I don't see how they're going to bring new stuff into it. If, as you said, it's adapted, I can see that they've got three really well-written scripts. Yeah. But even so, it more looks to me like, rather than making good films, it's Netflix trying to re-monopolise that grip that we spoke about last time on the podcast of them losing this majority control they had over the streaming market and just nailing down one big project really to be their sort of headliner for that because 450 million before you've made a film let's for two films let's say that's probably going to double maybe a bit maybe a bit less yeah so we're talking spending eight 700 to 800 million i would say on these two films plus what they've paid to acquire them are they going to gain all that back in revenue on a streaming service, I don't know. It counts as one of their what, originals, yeah. so they can say that that's part of that scheme that they said they were, you know, doing an original every week or whatever. But it just doesn't just doesn't do anything for me. It's just a weird title to buy in my mind. I, I don't get it. Like I've just googled the budget for like Avengers Endgame, and that was three hundred fifty-six million dollars. Yeah, it's like yeah, um, that's that's one film, yeah. but at the same time, that's like a three-hour-plus film that is, is going to box office and made yeah like, exactly in the biggest franchise at the moment it's going to box office billion the dollars. also yeah. i feel like this maybe comes across a bit film snobby like makes me feel like i'm trying to get involved in the industry but i like knives out as like an example of a small quite unique fun film 
Yeah. Like it doesn't need to become a franchise or a series. That's the thing. Like, it's be it's franchising for the sake of franchising now, isn't it? Because it's nice. Like what? you think, like in five, ten years, you'll look back and be like, "Oh, that's a bit like Knives Out." That film. I don't want to look back and be like, "Oh, it's like that series of films." Do you remember they were all so bad? Probably by the time this is over. Because I'm also trying to think, what are Netflix's franchises? They've got Stranger Things that I'm pretty sure is ending. They've yeah. got a couple of really hideous TV shows that are doing well that just aren't good, though. You know, things like You that I'm pretty sure is bad, or like 13 Reasons Why, which is definitely bad. Yeah. Film-wise, though, <laughs> have they got any... I don't think they've been around long enough I to have I a franchise. Um, and they can't acquire any because they're all owned by bigger production companies. So maybe that's it's them. an interesting concept for them to like own, to start their own franchise though. Don't mm. you think? But yeah, sounds like probably just not the right. Yeah, not the right franchise. So I mean, we'll have to it. see. I mean, they won't have one of those films out for three years plus. I'd say it's going to be a while before they can get one of those out, especially with the, the headline cast. They're definitely going to try to get mm. for them. There were a lot of stars so on that scheduling. first one. They're going to have to yeah, match a that. lot. And yeah, having everyone come out of quarantine to start projects they haven't managed to do in the last year. I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's a positive outlook to begin with. It'll be an interesting crazy experiment though. though. Yeah. Think about it. Two films, four hundred and fifty million. For the rights to two films as well. Not even for a, for a cent budget. of budget, yeah. Who are they buying it off? I don't actually know. This is what confused me as well, because I thought Netflix made the first one, but maybe Amazon Prime did. It was Yeah, it was on Prime. So they bought it off Prime, which is even weirder. Ooh, if if Prime are so willing much. to sell it to you, I almost think that shows it's not worth your time. I mean, yeah. Offer's too good to be true, though, isn't it, really? Mm. Half a billion pound, dollars? Yeah, just half a billion dollars move, for the right Shift it off Jesus. your platform? It's a bit strange, really. What can you do? What can you do? Big money moves, I'll say it again <laughs> for the last time. All right, well, I think that's pretty much the news for this week. Okay, then, time for our fortnightly delve into the deepest recesses of the mailbag, where we find out what you lot have been asking. And this week, we open with one that I actually think is quite an interesting concept. Um, and we've we've been asked, have you ever seen a truly naught out of ten film? And if not, what would it take to achieve that? Rory. Great question. Um naught out of ten really makes you feel like something that either it's tough, either someone's put very little effort into it, or it's something that just like doesn't hit with you personally, I feel. Because when we're giving these things ratings, part of it's like our own opinion and part of it's what we kind of see as the quality separate from our opinion, right? Subjective and objective and all that. Um, the closest thing that I would say, and this very much comes more down to the experience than the quality of the film itself, is a film called Locke with um, what, Tom, Tom Hardy. Hardy one? Tom Hardy in, yeah. Did you, um, really? Some people, isn't that some people really like reviewed, this film. isn't it? Yeah, some people yeah. really like it. I watched it with my dad, I think, one point at home, we yeah chucked it on TV and we're like, yeah, let's let's see what this is about. This is the one that takes place exclusively in his car, isn't it? Yeah. So it relies on quite kind of constrained, but I guess that's supposed to bring out the best um, acting and direction. Um, but yeah, mm. it's essentially one guy on a journey on some British motorway 
uh, follows him for about like an hour and a half. Uh, he has several phone calls. He's got like a high pressure job he's got to get to. Um, he's got like an affair that he's got to deal with as well as a pregnant wife. Or I think it's the, his mistress is pregnant. But anyway, none of this hit for me. And it was like the most boring hour and a half of my life. And come the end, did not feel satisfied at all. And I felt like there just wasn't enough put into it for the viewer. I think some people really enjoyed it. They were like, oh, it's so unique, so kind of new and innovative for as an experience, but it really did not hit the mark for me. Will, what about you? I don't know. I feel like I'm not cynical enough to ever like walk out of a film and be bold enough to say that was a zero. Mm. And this is coming from someone that has seen the Diary of a Wimpy Kid film <laughs> and mildly enjoyed it. This is a funny story, right? So I, <laughs> I, I went with a friend and we were going to watch Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't check the showings before we went to cinema and my friend on the train the whole way there was like worried about a copycat killer because i think there was there was something that happened in u.s theaters where oh, yeah. someone had pulled a knife or something uh, right anyway and we had a conversation on the whole train up like how nervous he was about like going to see this film and we got there like and it was just fate that it wasn't on so we ended up seeing diver wimpy kid anyway and I even mildly enjoyed that. Um, I don't think I've ever sat down. Sorry, so that copycat copycat killer bit wasn't wasn't relevant to the film not being in the cinema. No, but you know. Good <laughs> All right. Okay. I feel like the funny part of that story came much earlier than I thought it was. Yeah, that it, it was the start. <laughs> yeah. Um, Who so yeah, I've not the down. cinema before they go to watch a film. I I don't know. The, the, the we cool were young, kids, apparently, and naive. Who knows? Bloody hell, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's fundamentally possible to make a 0 out of 10 film. Because uh, it's like art, isn't it? Art can't fundamentally be nothing in terms of a score. That's I feel deep. like even if you produce something rubbish like, you know, The Room, that film that is literally supposed to be the worst film ever, on some level it has reached cult status, which means it can't be 0. Do you, do you know what I mean? Or even like, even a film that's got really low effort put into it, I still think there must be some sort of artistic merit or, or you like know... Like if you can finish a film, you've finished the film, yeah. so there must be something there. I, for it to be a zero, it would have to be the most offensive, crass, <laughs> artless bit of shithousery ever. That you'd you'd honestly what have to turn it off, and I don't think I've ever had to turn off a film because I disliked it that much. It's interesting. My oh, go on, go on, Will. You, you know what? Like my zero. Have you guys heard of that piece of music that's like twenty seven years old or whatever, and it's like one note that just changes every like ten years or something mm, stupid. No. Well, this is this is the thing, <laughs> right? And everyone like everyone knows it because of what it is. It's just so ridiculous. If there was like a film equivalent to that, where it was like four hours of just a white screen that occasionally changes to a different sake. colour yeah I, I would probably give that a zero out, yeah. out of ten I, th- I suppose it, then it comes down to the barrier or the definition of what you call a film You know, things like a live stream do they count as a film if we look at some of the lowest things we've reviewed on the Instagram Harry you gave the Witcher TV series a three yeah that was bad but then even then you can argue that there was some you know, design merit Mm. Or some co- on some CGI that was better than because 
again, it's me comparing things to what I consider quality in cinema, but even some CGI is really better than nothing, isn't it, really? That's the thing, I feel like modern, with a certain budget, modern films, the quality you can get as like a base, like the yeah. bottom of the barrel for quality is already quite high. Yeah, um, and like Justice League, I went slightly high. Oh, I'll tell you what, that is one thing that I consider almost giving a zero. Um, Love Island. <laughs> not sure that's a film. Sh- <laughs> shit that... like that can can almost... I gave that a zero on Save the Stub years ago. Well, Love Island but, as in uh, TV reality TV comedy. You write a review for Love Island. I didn't write a review. I didn't go to that length. I just I was doing general ratings and I went, this, this shit <laughs> can go die. And it, I gave it a zero. That's so mean. Because I see merit in a show like Love You're Island. So mean, Harry. Like, sh- three people from that show have died. Yeah, th- yeah, that you can't ignore that. That I would argue that that almost puts it's, it into a region of it's so bad that it's actually affected the mental health of some people. Hmm. Yeah. Like I think I was having a conversation with someone a few days ago and it's like Jeremy Kyle's off TV and it's it's banned. But Love Island cuz one person committed suicide yeah, off the Yeah, Love Island's still show. going, yeah. But Love Island, you've you've got three people there, and it's you know it just hits massive numbers for ITV. R- reality done. TV, I think, actually is the close. I, f- I think films, you you're never going to be able to get a zero. I guess it's harder you know, for films to like create negativity and like toxicity, unless we're talking literal propaganda films from like dictatorships. It's quite yeah. hard. Again, we're not reviewing sh- like whatever the latest TV. white supremacist American group are putting on their website. But, like, that must be the closest thing. Like, films that literally have nothing but a direct negative impact yeah. on their audience. So, um, I, I haven't ever seen a zero. The closest I've got was probably Justice League. But, um, yeah, I, I don't even know if it's possible. Um, question number two. Now, this is... There's a, there's a strong example given with it. And um, the question is... A US-based streaming services, so American streaming services, Americanizing UK-produced TV series. Now, I know that sounds like quite a niche category, but have either of you seen Sex Education on Netflix? I watched one episode I and have. did not vibe, so stopped. Now, it's weird, isn't it? Because you watch it, and it does look like they've just dubbed in British accents <laughs> on a show that is, for all intents and purposes, an American TV show. The set, yeah. So it's weird because, as far as I am aware, it is set somewhere it's in the Wales, UK. Yeah, However, it's Wales. Yeah, it, you're completely right. Like the whole vibe a bit, vibe a bit, vibe of vibe it. Vibe a bit. Um, like high, like it's referred as high school, and like yeah, everything that's represented about that show is like American culture, but just in the UK. I think that and it's must bizarre. be deeper. Not so, not deeper. It must be more superficial. I think there must be like an active decision in the writing of that, in the direction of that, that, like, oh, it's yeah. very jokey, we're purposefully making it seem American. I think the deeper question yeah. of our streaming services kind of Americanizing things is true, and it kind of needs to be approached in the way it's being approached in the kind of bigger audience being given to foreign language films. And I guess we're kind of caught in the middle as an English-language country, I mean, England, um, and... We're caught up in. Don't we? We're not considered English. We're not considered foreign language, but we don't want our cinema to kind of be enveloped by Hollywood. I don't know if it's an issue with streaming services themselves, though, or just 
everyone that's producing TV and film at the moment. Like, when you look on terrestrial TV, like British TV, on the BBC and ITV, like, those shows don't really feel like they've been Americanized to me. But I would agree that, well, Netflix and Amazon, let's say the two biggest ones, like, they offer streaming services globally, and a big market for them is America, and most of their executives are probably based in America, all that kind of stuff, that it's probably their culture that they're representing on the streaming service, despite, you know, we're just an, we're just a market for them. Yeah. They've got to, we're not like a center. Yeah, they've got to appeal to their largest denomination, which is the American viewing public. Have either of you guys seen Bridgerton? No. Yeah, I've just finished it, actually. Is it set in the UK? Yes. So I feel yeah. like it kind of adds Very into this so. weird, like, fet- American fetishization, fetishization of, like kind of the history and historical culture of the UK. I'm not trying to act really like arrogant, like, oh yeah, we've got the best culture out there. There's a lot of flaws in it, trust me. But um, it does feel like stuff like this, yeah, it's just kind of jumping on something and then t- like putting it all through an American lens. But I do get that vibe from almost all American-made English productions, if you get what I mean. That they that the way the Americans portray the British is actually astounding. Like I I did a review for Fury the other day that American tank show, and the British are in it for about thirty seconds, and they're just portrayed as bumbling fuckheads who actually just want to drink some tea, and as a result get some people killed because they're not paying attention when they're driving their tank. And I was a little bit like, I understand that we have a reputation for being. I don't know, whatever the hell our reputation is. But, like, chill out a bit. Do you know what I mean? Like, if if I was an American in a show I was making, I wouldn't just immediately make them, like, an obese person with an automatic rifle, because that would be rubbish. And yet the Americans love doing that with stuff, with with, with British people in it. It's so strange how Britain is created, produced, and written by American people. I did not know that. But it's obviously set and focused on uh what like regency era london what did you make of it will so this might actually shock some people i watched bridgerton with my family like my entire family mum dad and sister which was a rogue move because some of the scenes are not pg friendly let's put it that way um i don't know i so harry you've not seen it but i think you've made it clear that you're probably not the biggest fan of Americanization of the platforms, and I think Rory's similar. I I don't think we should ignore, though, that like a lot of people in the UK, the, the two series we've mentioned, like Sex Education and Bridgerton, a lot of people in the UK really, really like those shows. And I'm not saying that I'm one of them. You're allowed to be one, um, it's okay. I liked... I will admit that I did like Sex Education for kind of the vessel that it was in trying to communicate positive messages around sexuality and all that kind of stuff um i can appreciate maybe people think it was like written badly and done in the wrong way but um i applaud at least the effort because i haven't really seen anything do that kind of thing before um bridgerton i liked it for different reasons i kind of like the regency period i kind of find the sex scenes that... no <laughs> <laughs> I thought the sex scenes were overdone in it, to be honest, actually. I felt like they didn't oh, yeah. need to be in there. 
the first like three or four episodes didn't have basically any or a lot of that in it at all (laughs) and then like the last three or four it was just like full and it got a bit much for me i think that's probably because i was watching it with my family but um no i like bridgerton because i liked the regency period and i kind of like history or historical productions um but then again you know it's not like it's not very accurate is it i suppose it's (laughs) it's probably as far away from accurate as you can get yes so i'd say i don't know i don't think americans are culture swapping the uk shows out but i think there is definitely a uh, as you say rory a fetishization they do enjoy fictionalizing about britain and its history and even present day I think they romanticise it quite a lot. I still think they've got the uh, the uh, Hugh Grant image locked in their brains that is just not faithful to how, you know, for example, three fucking idiots on a podcast actually talk in real life. <laughs> but there you go. And then... The um, thing is... Oh. oh. No, 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 if you've got something to say, bro, I'm ready to hear it. I was going to extend, but I think... No, stop talking about your favourite sex scenes in Bridge 2, for example. <laughs> And then someone actually did ask this week something really relevant <laughs> that we've not addressed. And it'll become quite apparent when we talk about this film. But how do we actually pick the film we're watching for the next podcast? We, up till now, have essentially been picking things that either that are relevant and coming out <laughs> or stuff that was on my film list. Because <laughs> we picked a weird time to start a podcast. Well, we picked a good time in terms of we had a lot of free time. But we picked a bad time in terms of there weren't a lot of films coming out. However, comma, there are things coming out at least for the next two months that we've got slated and written down as what we will be watching. So, you know, a couple of examples, things like Sound of Metal is coming out in a couple of weeks. That will be definitely something I want to watch given its Oscar nominations and things like that. Zack Snyder's got another film coming out, a zombie one that could be interesting. And there's there's a host of other things that are coming out on Netflix, Amazon Prime, maybe even to cinemas if we're that lucky in a couple of months. But this week we finally decided we'd give power back to, uh, back to the people. And we've asked you, the general adoring fan, public, whatever you want to call yourselves, for some recommendations. And Rory's going to quickly run us through the ones that have made it to the top, as well as what we thought of the other ones that we were actually asked. Okay, so the films that were recommended to us were Watchmen. Which we will have a review coming out for in the next few weeks, so don't worry, that's coming out anyway. Harry, I know you're a big fan of that. Um, Ratatouille, which I think we can just dismiss. It's, it's, <laughs> it's only certainly up there. But who sent that in? Absolute moron would send that in, so um, ignore, block, report. <laughs> Black is King, which is Beyonce's film from last year, I think. I think I'll be I'll be reviewing that for the channel. Separately. Unreal. Uh, the Gentleman. This was actually something that we were thinking about before someone recommended it. Actually, um, big contender, big contender. Yeah, Guy Ritchie's got a new film coming out as well, so that was that was something definitely that we might look at in the future. So that is a good recommendation. L.A. Confidential. Yeah, this is quite a highly touted 90s sort of crime thriller, isn't it? However, um, I've got to think about watching films with pedos in, so hmm. Kevin Spacey. Who's in it? Get out of my oh, life. It's tough. Okay. Russell Crowe's in it. And uh, <laughs> finally, a trio. I'll pick Moulin Rouge. 
How I don't really know anything Moulin about Rouge. Moulin Rouge. It's a, no. it's a musical. It's, it's a fun film. But um, I've played um, I've played some music from it before, oh. but I've never even seen the film. Oh. So I'd be, I might be interested to watch that actually, because that was a long time ago. And the final, in fact, there was one more, and it was the Mauritanian, which is that right, or is it the Mauritian? No, it's the Mauritanian. It's the Mauritanian, yeah. yeah. Um, um, go on. Yeah, then. sort of. I think it's to do with the guy who orchestrated the nine eleven attacks. Um, being, it's kind of like a legal thriller, isn't it? Yeah, being illegally detained, and tortured in the US. Uh, it's got Benedict um, Cumberland sausage in it and Jodie Foster. Uh, Have either of you guys seen? Um, oh, I've completely forgotten it. Now. Rendition. No. So Rendition's a film with I want to say Jake Gyllenhaal um, but it's basically this guy who gets mistaken for a terrorist and gets taken to Guantanamo Bay and like gets basically abducted um, and like I think Reese Witherspoon's his wife and has no idea where he's gone or why he's been taken and it's there. called what? Rendition? Rendition, yeah um, It's actually quite a good film That sounds heavy it's But It Meryl is, Street it is very heavy, yeah and it's I think it's very like political terrorism thriller but that yeah. kind of sounds like i'm getting similar vibes from the mauritanian but yeah the mauritanian did win our fan poll so it looks like we'll be reviewing that one next and to be fair it's a new release as well on amazon Prime. it is so it's accessible yeah. to many um and we will look forward to digging into that mm, should be good um and with that that is the end of this week's mailbag Film of the week so the film for this week was Man on Fire, the 2004 thriller with Denzel Washington in Mexico City. Harry, I'll go straight to you, um, completely ignoring Will, who said off air that he had lots to say about it. But Harry, what did you make <laughs> of Man on Fire? So I sort, of, I sort of went into it very much expecting your typical Denzel shoot everyone who breathes within a hundred <laughs> mile radius with like four bullets and never get shot yourself. Uh, action film and I did get that to be fair to an extent but at least they gave it the 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 respect of developing some characters outside of Denzel Washington you know uh, you know the first hour I would say almost has no violence to speak of in it and instead focuses on this far deeper character development that I actually thought was a really strong move narrative wise for a film like this where they're so often keen to go down the violence route instantly hmm. having said that I, I don't I just don't feel grabbed by these films where it goes one man against the world I, I know what they're trying to do and I know they're guaranteed ticket sellers especially with someone who's so good at doing them like Denzel I mean for a man who doesn't get typecast he does get typecast as this role a lot yeah yeah you know it's it's the equalizer again isn't it really he's done this 100 times before and he is good at it but i really felt when it got into that second half i knew exactly what was coming as soon as i saw anything happen you thought okay great it's going to be another shoot him up with an explosion and some sassy one liners and some kidnapping and some blood will what did you um, what did you make of it yeah. overall this is the first film that we've watched on here where I actually got angry, like midway through the film. Oh, when you say midway, because when you say midway, we just we just yeah, mentioned angry. the first hour and the 
was this on the, yeah. kind of on the halfway point or a bit after the halfway yeah, point? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I agree with Harry. Like the first hour of this film, I really enjoyed the first hour of this film. I thought the acting in it was really good. But by one character in particular, I don't think the best actor in this film was Denzel Washington. But Dakota Fanning, who plays um, Peter... Bearing in mind she's a she's a child when she films this that I think her character is nine years old. I don't know how old she was when she played the character. I think she's by far the best actor actress in this film. Yeah. And um like it's not a spoiler, but when she halfway through the film she's not in as many scenes as she is at the start, because we're learning about her character. Um, but as soon as she's she starts to get off, she's not on the screen anymore. Um, I feel like the film starts to really go downhill quite quickly. Um, I think the relationship they were able to portray between um, the two main characters was like really, really strong. And I was watching it and I was like, this genuinely could be like a 9 out of 10. Because some of the individual performances, um, I think the script was was pretty well written as well. I, I couldn't really pick much wrong with it. Um, but then a lot of action starts to come about in the second half, and like I said, um, Peter Dakota's character's not not really in a lot of scenes, and it just gets really action heavy, and it's it kind of gets a bit gimmicky quite quickly. Um, I also struggle with this like the this, this storytelling that it's kind of very linear, so it's all it's always like got to hunt down this person and then I got to hunt down the next person and the next. That's very much and a, I didn't a really... Denzel trope at this point, I think. Mm. It is, yeah. yeah maybe guy to get to the next maybe guy. a victim of his writers and directors. I I hate this because we've been called out for all agreeing with each other on this podcast, but I literally <laughs> felt the exact same have, way about yeah. the film. I think that first hour was a really nice, like gritty, kind of dark look at life um, and like gang activity in Mexico, Mexico City. Um, really reminiscent of films. I don't know if any of you have seen... Um, Alejandro González Iñárritu and his like um, Amores Peros and Twenty One Grams, those ones, they're all kind yeah, of about like of Mexico, and yeah, yeah, they're like really kind of real brutal, close up looks at that like that life. Um, I think the first hour just like seemed like that, and when when we reach that halfway point, I'm kind of like okay, this film can go two ways: either Denzel can get back up be that classic Denzel character really over the top like propaganda kind of American like jingoism where they save the day and just if you're if you're not American it doesn't really matter if you get killed because it's like mm. that's not what it's about um, yeah, or it could have gone spaces. some kind of new innovative way and I think it was fairly obvious which way it went um, which was it, which was quite yeah. disappointing you could see a direct correlation between Dakota Fanning's screen time and the quality and as she disappears, it does begin to break down. And it's because I understand that you want to a plot line. Where it, I mean, you could see it from the first moment this film starts. She is going to be at risk at some point in this film. It's no spoiler yeah. to say that because you know that's going to happen. Yeah. But when you do that, you still have to afford her screen time to prove that there is something for not only for Denzel to fight for, but for you to expect tension about. If she isn't on screen even with the suggestion that she's alive or safe or whatever you aren't giving the audience enough to root for to really be 
driven on Denzel's every action, and that that issue is compounded when you give him plot armor, and they do give him plot armor in this film. Denzel much. gets shot about seventy times in the. I thought. Part. I thought. I thought every time he got shot, I was like, "He's wearing body armor," because any smart bodyguard would wear body armor, and he wasn't. And he never is. He's just surviving these gunshot wounds. And then you know, goes to the hospital for like a week, <laughs> and then, and then it was also being prosecuted, but then isn't because the journalist says something sassy, and yeah, then they all, and then they all walk out, and I was sort of, and then he, and then he just goes fucking rampage as you expected him to do in the. First. In, on one, on one side, yeah. On the one side, I'm glad they did the plot development, but on the other side, I was sort of like, if you're gonna sack it all off, save an hour of my life and don't bother. Build an hour and a half film where it's just Denzel goes fucking hunting, or because... or build that first ha- ha- first hour. It could have just ended at halfway, and that would be a quite nice like short film that's like, oh, this is how depressing and sad yeah. life is in that part of the world. Speaking of, obviously, this people. is adapted. I don't know if any of you guys know from, from a the book, true yeah. story oh. from a real FBI operative. Uh, FBI, I think I mean FBI, yeah, which does give some credence to why it's somewhat of a linear story because it's it's because it's true to a certain degree. Obviously, the stuff Denzel does is complete bollocks, but the the source material is supposed to be true. And, you know, them filming in Mexico City was not safe. They had a lot of camera... Oh, sorry, crew members robbed at gunpoint. They all had bodyguards. They were Some of them were carjacked. You know, Mexico City's a rough place. But on the other hand, Mexico City's scope for sort of aesthetic is amazing, hmm. and they don't use it enough in this film. They use it it's too again. Much. They use it in the first half and like nowhere else. Yeah, the final scene is in a, a nice part on the outskirts of Mexico City. Otherwise, they don't really explore what they really could have done with that city and with that. And what maybe arguably more angry than they're not exploiting this was what he did as in the director Tony Scott with the shot type. Now he does this thing that I like to call epilepsy <laughs> photography. Yeah. He does it in all yeah. his films. Yeah, and it's died out in recent years because people realise it's fucking stupid and because you've probably made 5% of your audience have a seizure as soon as you've done it. But the flashing lights and cutscenes, my mum had to stop watching the telly because it's just it's just horrid to look at. And it doesn't enhance anything because it's not in a scene where it's supposed to be dramatic. It's in a scene where they're trying to show you the environment quickly without wasting time on exposition. But it's rubbish. It doesn't work. And maybe people have realised that. Maybe it was a 2000s trope that's gone now. But it, oh, it's just awful to look at. I pretty much wrote down the exact same thing. I think there was a scene early on where he was like drinking and kind of felt really, it yeah. was where he was like suicidal, oh. kind of felt these like really emotional, like kind of emo thoughts. And Tony Scott throws this music in that's all like jumbled up to add to the cinematography. And it just like screamed early, to the, and it is early, early 2000s, but it's that trope that has now died away. That being said, I don't think this is a spoiler. I think if you read the description of the film, it talks about the fact that the, one of the main characters, Peter, is kidnapped. When mm. she is kidnapped, he uses that technique, and it actually works really well. I think it conveys the panic and the emotion and the scene really, really well. Um, but I don't think it's the kind of thing I enjoy seeing throughout a film. I think there are scenes where it works and so, a lot of scenes where it doesn't. And, yeah, it makes for some on a similar, yeah. On a similar note as well, like... The actual, the music that they use a lot of the time, I mean, we talked about the music in conjunction with that kind of technique, but more generally, like the music throughout the film. Um, I watched this with headphones on because there was like stuff going on around the house today. 
and at points it's so unbalanced and so loud and i feel like quite a lot of the choices of music they try so hard um, even they try so hard to convey like meaning with the music yeah and even when it's even when it's not kind of like a scene with lots of tension or or we need to you know feel a bit panicked by something even when it's like quite a nice scene i feel like the choice of music is really weird at, at points like it doesn't really hit the mark at all for me and even in the first half of the film i think that was one if i had one slight niggle about it because like i said i i really enjoyed the first bit of this my issue in the first half um, was it would be the random like l- lead in to a sex scene 17 minutes in that just yes, I, I, stuff like that i want a bell thing. i want a bell on this podcast where i can just be like unnecessary sex <laughs> scene <laughs> put it in, put it in the unnex the unnecessary sex bell um and it's like it just seems like it's trying to make you think oh yeah i'll keep watching this film it's like the relationship between the parents did not need that kind of exposition. Like you could feel no. the acting. I thought in general the acting of the wife, um, Rada Mitchell. Yeah, I yeah. I didn't I didn't think she did a great job. Um, but I think. Oh, see, I actually thought she was okay. I think this. In fact, no. The first half of the film, I think she was okay. The second half, I didn't like. But I think you got enough of a feel. You got a really good feel for the parents and their relationship. Um, and it didn't need that weird sex scene where it was like, oh, no. they're still okay because she gets naked for him. It's like, no, we don't, <laughs> we don't need that. Uh, for me, this film is all about the relationship between Denzel's character and Peter. Definitely. And to be honest, like the rest of it that it doesn't involve that and involves him, you know, killing a load of people and stuff. It didn't really do it for me. I feel like they really milked but... the kind of it's it's been in so many of Denzel's films, especially The Equalizer. But him being this like symbol of America that kills Russian baddies or Mexican baddies, yeah. um, I found it really weird when he was like, I get it was just part of his character, but him being really religious, um, and Americans seem to struggle with this being really religious while also carrying out acts of war, and it's like yeah, that's that's kind of one of the big problems in in your culture and society. I'm I'm sorry that you have to deal <laughs> with that. It was just messy. It gave a lot of mixed signals. You know, there were points where I was like, "Is the wife into Denzel?" And yeah, then realised, yeah, "No, that's that. that's not the case." Or, "Is the dad a bastard?" Or is he actually a really nice bloke? Yeah. Or you know, oh, oh my god, this training Dakota Fang's character to not flinch at the gun, and then she flinches when someone fires a gun in real life. <laughs> and I was like, right. So that whole that that entire segment wasn't didn't actually end up mattering because she still did it she won oh she you know she did work she, she won the race she ran in she ran outside though yeah when i found that a bit strange why didn't gun, you go back into the house you go back in the house yeah. on also well, from I mean, like she, a direction you know, point of view there were quite a lot of bits that i was like this seems really lazy and like surely you think for a couple of minutes before you do this like there was one bit in the second half where he tells another character like okay I'm going to exact my vengeance. I'm going to go do it, do all this stuff. And then five minutes later, it's a flashback of the same conversation being like, yeah, I'm about to do all this stuff. And it's like, we've seen, like, we saw this two minutes ago. Why Mm. are you trying to show me again? Like it's kind of the progression of the character when it's not, it's him in in the next scene doing the next thing. I also didn't get like, what Christopher Walken's character was really about. <laughs> he's not really like, there for, such, for any reason. He's there it? to be it's Christopher Walken. For, such, um, for a paycheck. Like, I don't know his name, so I, I just Googled it, but I recognise his face straight away. He's been in 
He's like massive. Yeah, isn't he? yeah. I mean, he's Lara Croft. He's Lara Croft's dad. In um, <laughs> in fact, no, he's not. That's not Chris Walken. That's the other. guy. He hides a watch up his ass in Pulp Fiction. That's so. What I'm telling you. <laughs> that's information I did want to know. He is he in Pulp Fiction? Yeah, yeah. he's not. He's, he's in it for about. Five, he's a five minute monologue where no one else says anything, and that's all he's in it for. Okay, well, he, he's massive, but more of this. Like what I'm trying to say is, I. Like surely could use him slightly better than probably what he was used in. It's just in this film. it's all a bit confusing. It doesn't all add up. It feels like they had the source material that was interesting, if unspectacular on screen, and they had to build, they had to flesh that out with something that was going to take for cinema. And they came up with a quite endearing first half, and then a messy messy second it's interesting because there are much better denzel washington films and yeah. there are much better tony scott films some of which have denzel washington in um one and yet film... this one's rating really high Eight, yeah yeah 7.7 on IMDb. yeah it's worth mentioning that, that was why we watched it this week is because i had this on my list and it was a very highly reviewed film and um imdb is normally my barometer so I was quite surprised when I did watch this and I didn't really get a lot out of it. If you want to watch a film that's a bit like this, much, much better executed. Um, again, same director, Tony Scott. Denzel Washington's the main character, but Deja Vu. Um, kind of, it, 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 it has quite a fundamental point in the plot that, isn't real like it's kind of supernatural not supernatural but um technology that doesn't exist um but it really i think is a really good action film um but yeah it just kind of shows there's this potential and i think it just did not come off in man on fire and like you guys have said that relationship between denzel washington and dakota fanning was so impressive and compelling in the first half and it just doesn't really exist in the second half like, why can't you just build on that? This is why I was, I was so angry. Honestly, I was so, so angry. Because it felt like this was like two films. It kind of like hinted to it in what we've said anyway. Mm. But what one half is like really nice and you've got subtle nuances and really good acting. And then the second half is like something that's just completely different. And it's not... I didn't want to see that. I did not want to see yeah. that. I would, I would honestly have said I preferred the Equalizer films just for giving me what they said they were going to give me. I felt more annoyed that they'd built me up and then ended up sort of spurning the opportunity than I did being shortchanged on, you know, aggressive... I mean, some of the violence, by the way, is a bit bullshit anyway. You know, when he... Wow, Are we talking I'm just about going to the say equalizer. the word RPG. That was ridiculous. <laughs> I've and I was like, oh, okay... When right. he just walks into the old man's house and is like, look, I'm not here to <laughs> hurt you, I just want to shoot just... this RPG out. You're and then there. it goes a bit off of the fairies and I thought right I'm sort of I'm, I'm done with this because I was quite I was I was paying attention the first half and I thought this second half doesn't require me to have both eyes on the screen to be honest um yeah well should if, we get on to rating it then if we've got no yeah. comments to make I'll let you yeah. uh, Will I'll let you go first you're the, the angry one in the room yeah surprisingly for once wow. yeah um genuinely the first hour of this film is like high eight, maybe even a nine, just for the pure brilliance of some of the acting I saw. 
I don't I don't think I've ever seen a child actor have a better performance. I mean, obviously, limited number of films I've seen. I've not seen a lot with kid actors, but genuinely, I don't think you can get much better um, than... Let's remember her name. Dakota, Dakota Fanning. Say her name. Better. <laughs> you can't get much better than Dakota Fanning in this film. I'll be dead honest. But uh, for how linear it was how a bit unrealistic it got in the second half of the film how overcompensated some of the elements like the music the plot etc um plummet it plummets what are you guys. gonna give it Cl- <laughs> <laughs> cliff edge say a number 6.8 okay harry would you like to round us off or would you like to go now uh, I'll go now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm similar ballpark to you. Will I don't think. I mean, I, th- I don't think the first half was as good as maybe you think. In my personal opinion, I'm not saying you were wrong. <laughs> like, you probably are wrong. That's, but like, come that's on. fine. I would. I would give it all about a six three, six point four. I. T- you know. I think you've got to give some. Uh, value to the fact that it is based on a true story. Based on a true story is like a get out of jail free card. It's also based on the book, the audience and the don't author know. said he was quite happy with how the film came off. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, it's not amazing, but it, and it's not one I'd remember. Dakota Fanning is the is the 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 strong point, no doubt. But otherwise, just a Denzel shoot him up. I my rating of the film hasn't changed, having spoken about this, and it's very similar to Will. I'd give it a six point seven. I think. The things that let this film down are the writing. I think they're kind of the things out of the control of a lot of the stuff we see. That mm. cinematic technique that, that Tony Scott liked to use, I think kind of at its time, kind of was quite effective in making you feel things that you didn't normally see in cinema. Um, it, is, it is uncomfortable, but that's kind of the point. Um, I think the acting from Denzel Washington was good. The acting from Dakota Fanning was excellent. Um, and yeah, the things that fell were stuff like writing, stuff like continued continuity that didn't quite fit in and didn't feel right. And yeah, going a bit over the top when it comes to being unrealistic. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a, a decent film let down by a second half that doesn't go the way it should have. Yeah, so pretty much a mid-six all around. Yeah. Worth watching once, though. I'd and say. I would definitely recommend watching more of Tony Scott's films, I think. Um Unstoppable is the one that always comes to mind. It's my summer film that I watch, a bit like Shooter. It's it's not a great film, but it's it's got a bit of a plot there. And uh, Denzel Washington and Chris Pine having some fun on a train. But yeah, I think that brings us to the end of uh, Man on Fire. Well, this has been episode seven of the Save the Stub podcast. Um, thank you very much, Will and Harry, for your participation. It's been lovely. No worries, anytime, mate. I enjoyed it a lot. Well, next week we will be watching The Mauritanian. It is available on Amazon Video right now. It's a legal drama directed by Kevin MacDonald, focusing on the kind of legal defence of uh, someone accused of the 9-11 attacks or kind of orchestrating them. Uh, It features Jodie Foster and Benedict Cumberbatch. You can watch it now and come listen to episode 8 where we'll be discussing it on the pod. Thank you very much and we'll see you next week. Peace.